0: Farming, I consider it a great irony in my life that right now I spend five to eight hours a week at our local farmer's market. A couple weeks ago, there were a couple boys walking around the market, and they were snacking on some produce. One kid was chomping down on a beet. I mean, like, full bites a beet. Some of you may like beets. Some of you may like pickled beets. I am in neither camp. In my humble opinion, beets and radishes and turnips were meant to be left in the ground. What this boy was doing was naturally appalling to me. Unnatural. And when it comes to most things at the farmer's market, they are unnatural to me. Growing stuff on your own land or using someone else's land to grow stuff or eating vegetables or cultivating mushrooms, it's all foreign to me. But I'm learning more about these things every week. One of the most interesting aspects of farming and gardening is how it coincides with spiritual truths. All throughout the Bible, God speaks spiritual truths to agricultural people using agricultural metaphors. One of the greatest examples of this is when Jesus talks about a seed. A seed must be buried in the ground. It will not come to life and it will not bear fruit unless it is buried in the ground. It must die. In order to truly live, the seed must be buried and then rise to new life. In our text today in Romans 6, Paul doesn't use the metaphor of seeds, but he does explain that if we are in true union with Christ, then we have died to sin and are alive to God. If we are united with Christ... Then we likewise have died to sin and are alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. Turn with me if you haven't already to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. Okay. Romans 6, 1 through 14. I'll start reading in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Grace. If grace is so abundant and so free, as Paul has stated at the end of chapter 5, it seems our response to God's grace is negligible. If grace is so abundant and so free, it seems our response to God's grace is negligible. If I can even say that word. Actually, the argument goes, if grace grows as sin grows and God delights to show grace, then we ought to sin even more so that grace can abound even more. That's the argument. If we sin more, God will show more grace. That's what he says in verse 1. And this is the argument he exposes. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. No. Never. Wrong. False. By no means. And there are two reasons why this line of thinking is faulty. First off, have you read the first five chapters of Romans? God hates sin. Sin is what brought death into the world. Sin has brought the wrath of God upon us. Sin is the reason for all the evil in the world. Sinning more means acting in accordance with the impulses and decisions that got us in the mess we were in in the first place. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Secondly, this line of thinking is faulty because it is an attempt to force God into showing grace. It's putting God to the test. Will God indeed show me grace when I choose to sin in this way? It's claiming the power to force God's hand. Now, Don't misunderstand me. God will continue to show grace to Christians in their sins. But we as Christians cannot demand for God to show us grace on the one hand, when on the other, we are blatantly disregarding how He has designed us to live. I used to work in a pharmacy. I got to meet a lot of interesting people through that job. But one of the most difficult aspects of working in a pharmacy is knowing when people abuse their medication. And I'm not just talking about pain medicine. There are people who experience high blood pressure. There are people who have cholesterol issues. Sinning so that God will show us more grace is like a patient taking cholesterol medication so that they can eat deep fried food at every meal. Why would I change anything about my diet? I've got a pill that fixes it. And actually, where I used to be a little concerned about what I ate, this pill now gives me the confidence to eat whatever I want to eat. Every day is cheat day. Now, not everyone is like that, but some are. And it's frustrating in the slap in the face of the doctors and medical professionals who are working to bring patients to full health. I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, for most of you in here. Now, there are only so many patients who would openly articulate their position that way when you're talking to them, but it's the same idea here with Paul in the spiritual sense. I no longer have to be concerned about the consequences of my actions because I've got this grace pill. And Paul says you can't think that way. You cannot live that way. And here's why. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now Paul uses this phrase multiple times in his writings. Do you not know This means they should already know what comes next. So here's what you know. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So a couple things particularly to understand here, because I don't want us to misunderstand what's going on. And that's why I say number one. Number one is there is no logical or biblical reason to understand this as referring to water baptism. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when referring to any kind of water baptism, it is never associated with being baptized into Christ Jesus. Go and make disciples, Matthew says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus said it. Matthew just recorded it. Water baptism is done in the name of Jesus Christ. Never does Luke write in Acts that new believers were baptized into Christ Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptismal regeneration is a false doctrine. Salvation is not a process that culminates and is sealed in water baptism. Paul has already gone to great lengths to show us that salvation is by grace through faith. Again, have we read the first five chapters of Romans? It wasn't through circumcision in the Old Testament, so why would it be through baptism in the New Testament? Now, soapbox aside, though, there's a lot more I'd like to say about that. It would take away from the text itself, which you are trying to understand. So the second point that we should understand, the second thing to understand about this spiritual baptism into Christ Jesus is that it signifies our union with Christ. What Jesus has experienced is what we also have experienced and what we will experience. As we continue to move forward in our text, notice the verb tenses present as you go back. And I I would hope that you would go back this week, later tonight, sometime this week, and look at these verses again, apart from me just blabbing on for the next 20 minutes. Study these things. Use some of these things that I'm pointing out to help you to understand what's going on here well. Notice the verb tenses that are present. There are certain things that are fully true about us already, and there are certain things that will be fully true. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried with him into death. The death that he has experienced is the same death that we have experienced. If you are in Jesus, you have died with him. And so verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So as Christians, we have been united with him in death, past tense, already completely true. And if that is true, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Future tense, we will be resurrected like him, which means we are not fully yet resurrected like him. God is the one who has done this for us. In Christ, the Spirit of God has united us with Christ. Titus 3, 4, and 5. Titus says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, and catch this here, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God has saved us in Christ through the Holy Spirit, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is our spiritual union with Christ. This is the baptism that Paul is alluding to in Romans. It's not water baptism, and it's not a second separate baptism that allows you to speak in tongues or do extracurricular spiritual things. We have died with him, and we will be raised like him. This is a spiritual truth coming from a spiritual act of God. But it does not end in the spiritual realm. There's a crossover that God intends to happen until that future resurrection finally happens. I already skipped over it in the second half of verse 4. Read with me all of verse 4 again. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God's action has a particular intention. We've already discussed what it is not. God's intention is not that we continue in sin. So what is it? That just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also, we too, might walk in newness of life. When Amy is performing surgery, how many actions does she take that are unnecessary? None. Hopefully, right? (laughs) Every action is intended to produce a particular outcome. Only cut here to only remove this. Her actions are intentional. When you discipline your kids, do you intend the discipline to produce a change of heart or a change of behavior for the next time? I mean, certainly we don't discipline them for no reason or just to punish them. When I hit a lob in tennis, I intend to hit it over their head so that they have to run back from the net and chase it. Now, when you're playing against Nathaniel, it's near impossible, but for a a lot of other people, it works. Our actions usually come with intentions. God's actions come with intentions. It is riddled all over our text today. We died with Christ and will be raised like Christ. These twin truths are intended to lead us to walk in newness of life. And the power behind these truths is there in verse 4. The glory of the Father. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And we too can walk in newness of life by the glory of the Father. The end of verse 4 says the intention was so that we might walk in newness of life. We now, because of our union with Christ, have the possibility to walk in new life. And it's possible through the glory of God. And this is an idea that's a bit new to me. I'm going to be transparent a little bit. I have not thought of the glory of God in this way before. But here in verse 4, what does Paul say is the power that raised Jesus from the dead? It is the glory of God. Before, I pictured the glory of God as merely a descriptor of his presence, a display of his glorious light. I pictured the glory of God as something we attempt as feeble creatures to either try and return back to him or try in vain to steal from him. Give God the glory or try to take all the glory for yourself. To God be the glory, great things he has done. But perhaps it should be also great things he has done because of his glory, in his glory. Or stated succinctly, his glory has done great things. He has a glorious purpose, and his glory accomplishes that purpose. The glory of God is not just an inanimate attribute. It's an active agent, an extension of God's nature, working in the believer, just as it worked in Jesus' resurrection. How can we overcome sin? We cannot. God can The glory of God can, the power of God can, the Holy Spirit can. We'll talk more about that later. Let's read verses 5 and 6 to dig deeper into this talk of being united with Christ in death. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then notice the further elaboration here of God's action and God's intention. Our old self was crucified, which only God could do. And his intention is so that sin has no dominion over us. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. There are two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of Adam. We saw that the last several weeks in chapter 5. It's a kingdom of death, a kingdom trapped in sin, a kingdom in bondage to sin, chained to sin, drowning in sin, dark, lost, without hope. That's Adam's kingdom. But there is also the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom of life, which is a kingdom of redemption, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of hope. Jesus' kingdom. And what on the surface seems counterintuitive is the idea that the entrance into the kingdom of Jesus is by death. If death leads us into the kingdom of Jesus, then it would seem natural that the kingdom of death would lead all people into the kingdom of Jesus. But this, however, misunderstands the focus and cause of death. I think Ephesians 2 becomes a good companion for us here. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead in sin. All people have lived in Adam's kingdom, and all people have been dead in sin. We were sinning. It's what we knew, it's what got us through the day, it's what we came home to at night, it's what got us up in the morning. This is how we, quote-unquote, lived in Adam's kingdom. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those who still do not trust in Jesus for salvation from God's wrath are living in sin. It is all that they know, and it is what they trust in. But those of us whose eyes have been open to see, whose ears have been opened to hear, whose hearts have been open to understand, are dead to sin. Sin has become death to us. It's like when you want to write someone out of your life because they really screwed up. They're dead to me. That person is dead to me. It's as if they don't even exist anymore. I won't give them the time of day. I won't bail them out of jail. I won't give them any money. I won't go hang out at their house. I simply won't even go near them. I am freeing myself of the burden that they have been and that they would continue to be on my life. Look again at verse 2 in our text in Romans 6. How can we who died to sin? We were dead in sin. We were dead in sin, but now we are dead to sin. These are spiritual truths and spiritual realities. If you are in Christ then you are no longer dead in sin. You are in Christ. You are alive in Christ. You are dead to sin. What is sin? I'm grateful that this month we read through the prodigal God by Tim Keller. I'm grateful for how he describes sin in there. And I'll paraphrase him a little bit. Sin is trusting in yourself. But there are two totally different forms that this can take. The elder brother and the younger brother, as he describes the parable of the the parable of the prodigal God, or the parable of as we oftentimes call it the, the prodigal son. Sin can be trusting in yourself by doing whatever you want to do, disobeying God because you trust in yourself for salvation, for freedom, for joy, for life. I don't trust that God knows what's best for me, so I disobey. I run away. I do my own thing. That's one way. But sin can also be trusting in yourself while doing what God wants you to do. Obeying God, but still trusting in yourself for salvation. My obedience should grant me God's favor. This is the other way to sin. Grace no longer is grace because it is demanded. It's expected. We are called to be dead to both of these false lives of sin. But the rub that we have all experienced in our life as Christians is the rub that we still sin. The spiritual truth and the spiritual reality that I know is not what I am physically experiencing. But before we get there, though, and go off on that tangent, in chapter 7 specifically, where Paul really does, it's important for Paul to further articulate the spiritual truth of the matter before we get a little bit ahead of ourselves. Paul is still arguing against the idea that it is okay to live in sin. Our union with Christ is the focus still. These are not just truths in the lives of sinners. This is true in the death and life of Christ. Look at what he says in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We should be able to recognize the parallels and contrasts here. Jesus' death was a death to sin. Jesus's life is a life to God. So if we are united with Christ, if our union with Christ is true, then it must also be true that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what verse 11 says. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God. Buried with him into death to sin, raised with him into life to God. This section that we are looking at today in Romans is a prime example of why theology is so important. We study what God is like and who God is and what God has done so that we can properly understand our relationship to Him. What He has done for us directly leads into our reaction. So ask yourself, do you have a proper reaction? Do I have a proper reaction? Am I reacting appropriately in response to God's grace in Christ toward me? Knowing God's actions and his intentions lead us to understand how we can apply such truths into our lives. It becomes a freedom of understanding. These are not rules to follow. They are truths to live in accordance with. And this is the only way to truly live. This is how to live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Naturally, I'm a person who wants the big picture. I want the reasoning behind it. The truth that empowers the intended action. This is what has been difficult for me in parenting is I like to ask the question, why, even when you're like three years old? Like, why are you doing that? Like, I want to understand your thought process behind why you took that action. I want the big picture. And God says, here, Stephen, here's the big picture. You are united with Christ. What is true for him is true for you. Know this and act upon that knowledge. So how should I then act upon that knowledge? Well, Make sure that we understand our union with Christ. A couple months ago, many of us read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. The main passage cited in that book was Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Being yoked to Jesus, another agricultural metaphor, is a picture of our union with Jesus. We are side by side together. His yoke is my yoke. My burden is his burden. We are united. We are one. His death is my death. His life is my life. I was buried with him. And have been raised with him so that I would walk in newness of life. Not like the old life, not like the life of sin and death, but like the life of Christ. The old man on the inside has died, the new man has been born. That's why Jesus talks about being born again in John chapter 3. So, if this is all true, how am I to live? verses 12 through 14 in our text. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Death no longer has dominion over jesus likewise sin no longer has dominion over us but the truth is intended to lead to action and our lives now as christians this requires active obedience to turn from sin and turn to god do not present your members to sin So ask yourself today and this week questions like this. In what ways have I opened myself up to sin? In what ways am I disobeying God? In what ways am I depending on my obedience and not depending on God? Then present yourself to God. And ask these questions, God, how can I bear fruit for your kingdom this week? God, how can I serve you for your honor this week? And simply enjoy your relationship with the Heavenly Father. God has acted in justification so that we would have the ability to act with him in sanctification. Sin does not have to reign in our body. Sin should not reign in our body. Because of our union with Christ, we can overcome. So work to overcome. According to the grace given to us, live as citizens of Christ's kingdom, even while we are still in the midst of Adam's kingdom. Let the grace that you have received work in you. You are a seed that has been buried and is now coming out of the ground. Reach for the sunlight. Soak in the rain. You are now no longer just a seed. You are a new plant. So act like a plant. You were dead in sin, but now you are dead to sin because you were buried with Christ. And not just that, but you have been raised with Christ. So now you are not just the old self. You used to be. You're a new man, a new woman. So act like a new man. Act like a new woman. Reach for righteousness. Soak in God's grace and truth. Depend on God for the growth. And he will not disappoint you. Let's pray. God, your word is true. Your word accomplishes what you intend it to. There's so many things that could be looked at and studied in a text like this. But God, help us to at least understand that you have united us with Christ in order that we would be dead to sin and alive to you. That the life we now live in the flesh We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Let us no longer walk in sin. Let us no longer revel in sin, desire sin. God, you have broken the power of sin in our lives for those of us who are in Christ. So give us the strength that we need through that resurrection power. To not sin. To honor you in our lives. Help us to live for you. To live our lives to you. God, we have only one person that we have to give an account to, and that's to you. Help us to remember that. Give us the faith and the grace to live like that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.